0: Good morning, church. Good to see you. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor, and it's a privilege to do so. I have three daughters, 12, 9, and 6, and recently my 9-year-old was talking about what it must be like to be an only child. Any only childs in the room? Anyone grew up an only child? Not many, just a few. And so my 9-year-old was saying, "I I don't know that I would like to be an only child, and she started talking about her siblings, and I thought, oh, this is so sweet. She loves her sisters too much to imagine life without them. But then she said, the reason why I wouldn't want to be an only child is because when you make a mess, you can't blame anyone else. (laughs) So I went from a parenting high to a parenting low for me very quickly. We've been studying the life of David this summer, and David has found himself in a lot of different messes, hasn't he? He was underestimated by his own family. He was overlooked by the prophet Samuel. He faced a giant that he had no business going up against. Then he had a king who wanted to murder him and kill him, who chased him all over the place through the wilderness. David's hiding in caves and living off the land and facing challenges from all different places, all these different messes. But if we're honest, up until this point, basically the messes that David is dealing with he didn't make those messes. Somebody else made those messes and he had to deal with them. But this morning, in 2 Samuel chapter 11-12, and 12, we're going to look at a mess, and it's a big one. And David made it. And there's no one else to blame. This is a terrible story. And in this story, we're going to learn the way into sin and the way out of sin. Maybe you're thinking, I don't need any more help getting into sin. I already know how to do that just fine. But I want us to understand together what actually happens when we sin the way into sin and also the way out of sin In 1st Samuel chapter 11 we're going to look at this passage the first thing that happens the first step on our way into sin is number one we forget who we are we forget who we are let's look at this verse 1 of 2nd Samuel chapter 11 it says in the spring of the year the time when kings go out to battle David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, listen. Uh, this time in history, the men would have different seasons of the year where they would do different things. When it was time to plant, they wouldn't go off to war. They would stay home and they would plant. And when it was time to reap the harvest, they, they would stay home and they would reap the harvest. But in between, they often went out to war. So there were specific seasons of the year where they would go to war, and the king was supposed to lead them out. David is the king. He's supposed to lead his men into battle. But the author wants us to know something very significant. David didn't go to battle like he should have as the king. He remained in Jerusalem. And now this is all before the wheels begin to fall off, and it gets ugly. But it starts here. David forgets who he is. God had picked David, this overlooked shepherd boy, raised him from being a nothing to being the very king of Israel and of Judah. And David should have been leading his men into battle as the king. But for whatever reason, he remained back. He forgot who he was. Sin is always an identity issue. Sin always starts with us forgetting who we are. It's not just forgetting the rules. It's forgetting who we are. David forgot to live as king, and it cost him. Now, it's the same for you and I. When we sin, we forget. We forget. If you're a Christian here this morning and you sin, then you forget that you've been created in God's image. You forget that you've been commanded to reign and rule with God. You've forgotten that we are the people of God and we belong to him alone. We forget that we have a good father who gives good gifts. Instead, we go running around everywhere else looking for other sources of goodness. We forget that we are redeemed and that our lives are not our own because a price has been paid for us. We forget that we've been set apart for God's purposes and plans. We forget that God set his very Holy Spirit within us, and we forget that God has a mission for us, a work for us to do that's so much bigger and so much better than sin. Listen, avoiding sin is not... Growing up, I always thought avoiding sin was just saying no to a whole list of things, right? There's like a whole list of things that you should never do, and they look pretty cool, But don't do them because they're wrong. And that's kind of how I always thought of sin. But avoiding sin is not just saying no to these things. Avoiding sin requires us to say yes to something better, to something good, to who God has called us to be, to who God sees you to be, and who he has declared you to be. So step one on our way into sin, we forget who we are. Second thing that happens is we believe a lie. Let's keep reading. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch He was walking on the roof of the king's house. He's in the palace. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. If you were reading the story of David, everything up until this moment, he's been incredible. A man of honor, a man of character, a man who constantly did the right thing. And you come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's like shocking, it's jarring. Why would David do this? Why would he commit this great sin? He believed a lie. Now, when you read this story, um, you're struck with the what, of what, the what he did, right? His actions, and they're terrible. They're unthinkable, what he does. And by the way, it gets worse. We'll, we'll talk about it. But one of the things that we have to understand is if we're really going to understand what happens when we sin, is this simple idea that behind every what is a why. Behind every what is a why. Listen, if you're a parent, you know that you spend so much of your energy trying to determine why certain things happen in your house, Right? You've asked questions like this. Why did you do that? What were you thinking? What was going through your brain? Why are you so much like your mother, right? Like those sort of questions. You're trying to determine the why behind the what. Behind every what is a why. So when we look at what David does here, committing adultery, abusing his power, and it's going to get worse, we have to ask ourselves why. And we have to do the same thing for ourselves. When we have sinful behavior, sinful attitudes, There's the why behind the what. But behind every why is a lie. And the lie often sounds like this. You need this. You can't live without this. You deserve this. You have to have this. If you don't have this, who are you? What good are you? And who's telling you those lies? Well, behind every lie is an idol. Now, when we hear the word idol, we might think of like a little wooden... A Buddha, or a little something made out of metal or stone that, that people worship, and, and it may feel like something we can't relate to. But for us, idols are not necessarily physical items that we prop up in our house and we pray to. For us, idols are things that our heart loves most, adores most. So an idol is a good thing that we make into a God thing, right? An idol is something that's useful that we make it ultimate, An idol is when we take something that's been created and we put it on par with the creator. An idol is anything that we love and trust in and hope in more than Jesus. And we all struggle with these. We all have these things that we find our identity in, that we try to uh, drill into and find meaning and purpose in. And sin is not just an identity issue. Sin is always, it's always an idolatry issue. Now, what are some of the idols in our lives? I wrote some down. For some people, their idol is control. They love control. They need control. And when they don't have control, you'll know it <laughs> because they're not a lot of fun to be around, and I struggle with that myself. Some people, their idol is approval. Every room they walk into, they need to know that they're liked, that they're accepted, that they fit in. Every relationship, their emotional well-being is at stake based on how they're treated. For some people, their idol is comfort, and anything that gets in between you and your sweatpants and your remote control at night uh, is seen as a threat. For other people, it's respect. They'd rather die than not be respected. They'd rather not live than have the respect of people around them. Some people, it's independence. They're going to do it their own way, and no one's going to tell them otherwise because that's how life makes sense to them. For other people, it's being right, and they've got to get the last word, and they've got to win every single argument. Listen, sadly, I can relate to all of, <laughs> all of those, all of those. What about David? What's going on in this story? I've heard this story many times. And when I read it this time, what jumped out at me was the word power. David had a lot of power. Think about it. He went from having no power, the youngest of seven brothers. If you're the youngest of seven brothers, you don't win anything. You have no power. He went from being a shepherd, youngest in the family, to now he's the king of Israel. God raised him up and gave him so much power. It should have been enough, right? it never is that's how idols work they don't satisfy they say they will but that's the lie that's the lie that we believe you look at this story david had so much power and he had, so so let's just talk about the story for a second i want to tell you what happens next first off david as king has the power to not do what he's supposed to do he's supposed to go to battle but he's the king Nobody can tell him what to do. You try that at work this week. Go into work and tell your boss, I don't think I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do this week. It won't go well for you. Why? Because you don't have the power to do that. But David had that sort of power. David's power actually is seen in the height of his house, his palace. His palace would have been the tallest palace, the highest roof in the whole city. So when he saw this woman bathing, it wasn't that she was bathing out in public or that she was being indecent. It was that because of his power, he had the ability to look into the roofs of other people's homes. He had this power. Then he has the power to send messengers. Hey, go find out who this woman is. And then the send messengers, okay, bring her to me. I just, just want to meet her. I just want to meet her. And then we don't know what happens that specific night, but in some way his power is on display and he's able to be with her, right? And then he sends her back. That's power, just sending her back. I'm done, right? And then the word comes, I'm pregnant. And so here's what happens from here. I'll just, instead of reading it to you, I'll tell you. He, he gets worried because her husband Uriah is fighting, ironically, for him. Her husband is risking his life fighting for his king, who's committing adultery with his wife. And so he sends for Uriah. He says, send him back to me from the, from the front of the battles. And so Uriah comes back and David says, Uriah, give me a report. How's the battle going? Now here's something you need to know about Uriah, two things. Number one, um, he is, he's listed elsewhere in Scripture as one of David's 30 mighty men. So, Uriah is one of the 30 best warriors in all of Israel, and he's risking his life for this man, David. Not only that, Uriah is not even an Israelite. Did you hear it in the story? He's a Hittite. But we're going to see that he understands more about the covenant that God's made than even David does in this story. So, Uriah gives him a report on the battle, and then David says to Uriah, Hey, while you're back in town, why don't you go home tonight? Have a good meal, enjoy your home, enjoy your wife. Have a good... And David's trying to get Uriah to be with Bathsheba so that when she has the baby nine months from now, people will go, oh, well, Uriah came home, and that makes sense. He's covering his own tracks. How? By using power. Uriah is such a man of integrity that he says, how can I, he, he doesn't. He sleeps instead at the king's gates. And the next morning, David's like, Uriah, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, how can I go home and enjoy my home? When my, my, my military friends are out there risking their lives, I will not do it. He's a man of great integrity. So David says, all right, stay one more night. And David gets him drunk that night thinking that maybe that will lead to something. But again, Uriah won't go home. And so now here comes the ultimate power play by David. He writes out Uriah's death sentence, rolls it up, and hands it to Uriah and says, deliver this to Joab, the commander. Uriah is such a man of integrity, he doesn't look at that thing. He carries it right back to Joab. He hands it to Joab. And in that letter, it says, Joab, the next time you go to to battle, put Uriah at the very front and right in the heat of battle, when it's at its worst, pull back everybody else and basically expose him so that he'll die. And that's what happens. They have a city under siege. And their military strategy back then would never be to attack the walls of a city under siege. You just starve them out. You don't approach. Because when you get close to the walls, it's danger for you, because now they can throw things off the walls at you, and they can shoot arrows at you. But Joab goes against his military uh, common sense because of David's command, the king, and he sends his men. And talk about power, from miles and miles away, he's commanding armies to go and fight in ways that they never should. They get to the wall, they pull back, and Uriah is killed in battle. Joab sends a messenger home to David and says, give him this report about what happened in this battle. But when David gets angry because we approached the wall, because David was a military genius, he knew that wasn't smart. Make sure you tell David, Uriah, your servant, died. And it was the cue that David realized, oh, that's why Joab did that, to fulfill my command. And then David sends the messenger back to Joab and says, Dah, don't worry about it. Those sort of things happen in battle. That's just part of being a warrior power so much power in this story you think being king would be enough (laughs) but it's not this is the nature of the lies that idols tell us if you just get one more pay raise if she just notices you if your parents just finally say they're proud of you that'll be enough but our hearts have not been created to be filled with created things Our hearts have been created to be filled with the creator, and it's never enough. I was watching an ESPN 30 for 30 on Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was a famous basketball player. He won three uh, championships with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And at the end of this 30 for 30, he's sitting on a stage all by himself, and he's talking to a camera. He's got his hat on. He's got his sunglasses, and this is what he says. This is an exact quote. He says, it's hard, man. I'm one of the 10 most recognized people in the world. I should be happy, right? Funny, huh? And then he just breaks down crying. He loses it. He starts sobbing. I remember watching that and thinking, this is exactly what our idols do to us. They say, if you get me, you'll be happy. And then we get them. We're not happy, and we're worse than we were to begin with. And here's Dennis Rodman, one of the ten most recognized faces in the world, and he says, I don't know why it's not making me happy. It should, right? Instead, he's miserable. Listen, when we build our lives on something other than Jesus, we always need more of it underneath us, and we're always going to keep trying to grab it and hoard it and pull it to ourselves, but every foundation outside of Christ is a sinking sand. There's lies that lead us to sin. I remember uh, recently I was watching a fishing show with my daughters, and this guy was fishing, uh, top water fishing, trying to catch bass down south. And he had this fake little frog, and he'd throw it out there, and then he'd yank it. So it looked like a frog was jumping across the top of the water. And these bass would jump out of the water, and they'd grab that fake frog, and they'd pull him in, and they'd catch the bass that way. I remember years ago hearing my friend Dan Williams say, when it comes to sin, The bait is fake, but the hook is real. The bait is fake, but the hook is real. David thought, I just need a little more power. She looks good, you know, and I got the power, and I can get away with this. Here's what David did. He powered his way into this mess, and then he tried to power his way out of it. That's how deep-rooted our idolatry is. Our idolatry will get us into our mess, and then we'll rely on our idolatry to try to get us out of our mess. But we're going to see that it doesn't work here. In verse 26, it says, When the wife wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore a son. Seems like he got away with it, right? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Another translation says it was evil in God's eyes. The way into sin, forget who we are and believe a lie. The way out of sin starts this way. We have to receive the truth. We have to receive the truth. So what happens in the next chapter is a prophet named Nathan comes to David and says, David, I want to tell you a story, story time. Uh, there was two men who live in the same area. One was rich, one is poor. And the rich man had so much stuff, so many herds and flocks and pastures and properties. And this, this poor guy had one little lamb. This little family pet, this little lamb that lived in the house with them and slept at the foot of their bed. And this little lamb that was in all the family pictures at Christmas time. Like they loved this little lamb. And then this rich guy's got a friend who comes in town for a visit. And the rich guy's like, I want to feed my friend. But instead of killing and slaughtering one of his sheep to feed his friend, he goes to the poor man. He takes that guy's one sheep and he kills it. And And David flips his lid. David is so angry, which actually tells us something very interesting. David never lost his moral compass. He never lost his sense of right or wrong. He just didn't live that way. He gets so angry and he says, this person deserves to die. And they should pay back four times what they took from that person. And then look at the boldness of Nathan in this next passage. Then Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if this were too little I would add to you as much more why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight Nathan comes with the truth we need to receive the truth I used to see this doctor who was too nice he was, too ni- he was the nicest guy in the world but you don't always want a nice doctor do you? Sometimes you need an honest doctor. And so I used to have this nice doctor who would say, "Ah, I mean, you could probably lose five pounds. You know, he's just like being the nicest guy in the world. I'm like, I know I'm like 40 pounds overweight, and you're telling me I think I can lose five pounds? But he just was the nicest guy. He wouldn't tell me the truth. We need people in our lives who will tell us the truth. Nathan comes to David. He draws him in with a story, and then he slaps him with the truth. And listen, The story could have gone differently from here because David still had one power play left to make. He could have had Nathan killed. He could have banished Nathan. He could have kicked him out and called him a false prophet. But thank God David didn't use his power this time. He recognized and he received the truth. What happens when someone speaks the truth to you? When someone speaks a hard truth to you, what do we do? We deflect it. We reject it. We say, well, you don't understand. You don't know me. We question their motivations. We're so good at protecting ourselves from the truth when we don't like what it has to say to ourselves. But if we're ever going to get out of sin, we have to receive the truth. We have to be willing to receive the truth. Where do we get that truth? A few, a few places we go. First, we go to the Bible. There's Christians who don't know God's word and they don't know why they can't honor him with their lives. You can't follow God's word if you don't know God's word. You've got to be in his word. We get it in prayer. J.C. Ryle said that prayer will either consume sin or sin will choke out prayer. Prayer and sin can't live together. Prayer will either consume sin or sin will choke out prayer. We get it from the community together, the one another's of scripture. Love each other, encourage each other, but also at times rebuke each other. Part of our responsibility to each other is to speak the truth to each other and to challenge each other and to call each other out to speak the truth in love. And then when we worship, what we did earlier, we sing these truths to God, to ourselves, and to each other. And there's so many people who are trying to follow Jesus and they wonder, why do I struggle so much? But they never use these tools. They're not in the word, they're not in prayer, they're not gathering, they're not singing. And this is the only place we get these sort of truths. And David, thank God, receives the truth. And in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And what's so interesting is that David didn't just sin against the Lord, did he? David sinned against Bathsheba, terribly abuse of power. David sinned against Uriah, had him killed. David sinned against Joab, made this man lead his men into a defeat. uh, David sinned against the other men in the army because I'm sure other people died because of his military direction. David sinned against so many people. He sinned against his own family. He sinned against all of Israel. But what he says is, I sinned against the Lord. Now, what's happening? Is David ignoring all the people he's hurt? No. David understands a very important truth, and this is it. Listen. We never sin against each other if we don't first sin against God. All sin is first against God. Think about what David did. He, first, he broke the 10th commandment, which is coveting. He wanted Bathsheba. Then he broke the 7th commandment, which is adultery. Then he broke the 6th commandment, which is murder. But first and before all of that, he broke the 1st commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. David had another god in this story. It was power. He needed to receive the truth. And he understood that he sinned against God. Now, a couple quick questions. We're going to close soon. But here's some things you need to reflect on for yourself this morning. What truth that can confront a specific area of your life have you been ignoring, avoiding, fighting against? What aspect of who you are, what flaw, what struggle are you most offensive about? And nobody can talk to you about it. That's probably an area where you need to receive the truth. How is God's word challenging your natural desires? And who have you given permission to speak hard truth to you? We all need people in our lives who can speak hard truth to us. So how do we get out of sin? Number one, we receive the truth. But then lastly, we have to remember who we are. David repents and he returns. Repenting is remembering who Jesus is, that he's better than power, control, approval, access. And repentance is not turning from bad behavior to better behavior. Repentance is turning from idols back to Jesus and seeing the worth of Jesus and the worthlessness of our idols. They say they can do things for us that they cannot do, but what Jesus said he could do, he did. Jesus said, I will die and I will be resurrected, and he pulled it off. He did it. And what Jesus said he will do, he will do for us. We turn from these things. And in Psalm 51, verse 12, we have David's psalm of repentance. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Here's what David is saying. Remind me of who I am, but first remind me of whose I am, right? You'll never know who you are until you know whose you are. You belong to God, and because you belong to God, listen, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, because you belong to God, you are a child of God. You've been adopted into the family. God chose you before the foundations of the earth. He chose you. He knew your name. He, pre- he he predestined you to be saved and to be rescued by him. Jesus gave his life for you. He saved you. He sanctified you. He sealed you for the day of redemption. You're a child of God. You are righteous in the Father's eyes. Don't forget who you are. When we forget who we are, we sin, but when we remember who we Are we return and we look to Jesus and we place our hope and our trust in Him? There's a path to wholeness, but it's painful. It's receiving the truth and remembering who you are. One of my girls' favorite movies is the movie Moana. And in Moana, there's the main character, and at the end of the movie, she comes face to face with Tafiti. And Tafiti is this um, sort of mythological character who's this beautiful island creature. But he or she, I forget what it is, forgot its nature. And by the time she confronts Defeati, she's become a, a volcano, rock and fire. She's forgotten who she is. And Moana sings this song to her. I want you to see these lyrics. But as I read them to you, I want you to hear God the Father saying these words to you. Listen, I have crossed the horizon to find you. Did Jesus cross a few barriers to find us? I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. That's what God says to us when he finds us broken in our sin. He looks at us and he says, I came so far for you. I came so far for you. So many things in your life and so many things in your heart are trying to steal your heart and steal your joy and and, and rip it from you, but that doesn't define you. That's not who you are. I know your name, and I know who you are. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that saves us. That's the God that we return to. That's the God that's so much better. He's so much better than anything else, than anything less, than all the idols. You can have, try to chase all the power, all the control, all the pleasure, all the happiness. It's going to leave you empty. But Jesus came so that we could have full life, life to the fullest. Let's pray together.